The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello out there! Yes, hello everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the None But The Brave podcast. I'm Hal Schwartz, and I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. Flynn, how you doing? Doing pretty well. Thank you for asking. Oh, my pleasure. So there's been quite a bit of activity in Bruce World since we last spoke for the podcast. There has, and it's I never would have thought 2019 would have been this busy in Bruce Land. It is the truth. We got the first single from the Western Stars movie, which is Sundown. They also released an accompanying video, which is straight out of the film. I really like it. It is a bit unusual for a Springsteen live track. I'm using live in air quotes because this is really much more of a controlled setting than, say, like an arena concert. It seems like he really acted to recreate the music from the the album in this setting, including the 30-piece orchestra. There is really not much of a difference between the studio track and the live version that they've released, although his voice, of course, sounds different without the studio trickery. He still sounds great, though. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't hear much studio trickery on on his voice in, in, in this clip. And I, and I can see where, what they were trying to do in terms of recording everything live, because obviously that wasn't how they approached this album. This, they, re, they recorded this one with, or the album, with so much people in and out all the time. And so to have everyone together, I'm sure was a real thrill, not just for the musicians, but for Bruce as well. I think it probably was. You know, one thing we don't know from this is, is this a single take or since it's a movie, is it multiple takes of the song cobbled together into one version, which of course is totally acceptable for what they were doing. I do think that that distinguishes it from obviously say an arena show. And I don't know that this is going to give us a real sense of what it would have been like had there been a Western stars tour. Yeah, I guess we're really, really not sure of that, but I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the whole film, to see this one, this one particular track in context, to use one of our favorite words, to, just to see how everything would sound together. I think that that is important. I mean, obviously, you're talking about any movie taking a, a chunk out. You're not getting the full context, as you say, and I am really looking forward to seeing it next week. Another thing that's happened since we last spoke for the podcast is that you've actually seen Bruce perform. I have, but it wasn't in a barn in uh, in Colts Neck. It was actually at the Monmouth County Historical Association. Uh, they, it was the gala opening of, of Springsteen, his hometown exhibit. And then, of course, Bruce came out and played one song with Joe Groshek in the House Rockers, Light of Day. We were also able to check out the exhibit before the show, and it, it was pretty interesting. Was there any single highlight of the exhibit that you want to tell everyone about? Yes, for me, it was the the four track recorder on which Bruce recorded Nebraska. Oh, that's uh, really cool. And I always when I see something like that in, in a museum, I always think back to that was there when something special happened, when something special was created. And so you kind of I got, you know, I got goosebumps. What can I say? No, I, I totally get it. I mean, you think of him in that room on what was it? January 3rd, 1982. That's it. Sitting with that machine, a very simple machine, and and creating art of that level, it, it's pretty. It is. I understand why you got goosebumps. Yes, it was. What, what struck me though, what is, is that it was bigger than I thought it was going to be. But 
Oh, that's interesting. I'll have yeah. to see pictures of it. Yep. Hopefully, hopefully I'll get there at some point. I hope so. I think you'd enjoy it. Now, before we move on to our episode topic this evening, which is going to be the Springsteen Archive series, we did want to take a second and really thank everyone who gave us feedback after our first episode. We really, really appreciate it. We appreciate the excellent feedback we got. We appreciate the people who've reached out and said that they listened. We're touched by it in all sincerity. Yes, we really appreciated all the all the positive feedback that we, that we received, and I got to say, it was very gratifying to see that we sparked some some good conversation in in some online forums. Yeah, that's really amazing, and we want to engage with people. So, if you want to reach out to us, we're at on Twitter at NBTB Podcast. On Facebook, we're at None But the Brave Podcast. Come tell us what you think, positive, negative, whatever. We're happy to hear it. We do want to hear it all. And now let's move on to our topic for this evening, which, as I said a couple of minutes ago, is going to be the Springsteen Archive series. This is a topic that is near and dear to both of our hearts. Absolutely. We can talk about this for hours and hours, but we're, but we're not tonight. Yeah, we'll try and keep it under an hour tonight. That seems like we don't want to bore the audience too much. No, I think that's a very good idea. we got to keep it short and sweet. With that in mind, let's start with the fact that official bootlegs actually did not start with Bruce, of course. They started no, with not. another band that is very uh, much a favorite of mine, and that's Pearl Jam. Back in the year 2000 on the Binaural Tour, Pearl Jam went to Sony. I actually knew someone at the label at the time. The label was very resistant to the idea, but... Pearl Jam stuck with it. They said, we're going to do this. And they did release 72 live albums, every show on that tour. And the rest is history. That's very impressive to release basically 72 live albums in one calendar year. Yeah, what's really impressive about it is they set a record for the most albums debuting in the Billboard Top 200 at one time. I, it really was, turned out to be a massive success, and it certainly changed their careers forever, and it has led to a sea change in the industry. Oh, absolutely. I think so many other bands have gone on to, to do the instant live or the live downloads uh, ever since. And the interesting thing is Bruce would seem tailor-made for such a series. He is obviously a legendary live performer. He mixes the setup every night, and yet he was a holdout for how many years? What was it, 14 years? Pretty much. Um, and I hope I'm not telling tales out of school here, but in 2003, right before the giant stadium stand of the Rising Tour, he was indeed approached by Sony to release all 10 shows from Giant Stadium. Oh, is but, that true? Uh, as it's what I was told from a very reliable source at the time. And Bruce obviously declined. He said no, because every show wouldn't be perfect. Yeah, and that's one of the things you have to adjust to here, I guess, as an artist, is that if you're used to sitting in the studio and finding every little error on a live show, you can't do that with these. And I guess it took some time for him to get used to. Absolutely. Uh, and we're so thankful for that, too. You know, I mean, we had fans taping these shows anyway, and you had a, and you had these recordings circulating anyway. They just weren't always in the best quality. It made sense for Bruce just to say, you know, I'm going to do this myself and I'm going to make some money off it and I'm going to make sure everyone gets the best sound quality. In addition to getting in a mindset that you're just not going to have perfection if you're releasing every show. Bruce is very old school. And of course, the old way of doing these live albums, let's take a look at Live 75 to 85. War has a solo on that 
album that was not played in the actual show was taken from in a way it was that album is like live plus studio and that's not knocking bruce in any way that is how live albums were put together in the 70s and 80s zeppelin did it that way i mean they all did it that way so it's just really a different way of looking and how you're going to release material when you when you listen to the re audience recordings of the shows that spawn live 75 85 you can really hear a difference and i kind of prefer the the original show and not and not the studio tinkering for sure for me the the most important thing about the uh official bootlegs is it's capturing what happened that night and i want to hear it unvarnished and thankfully bruce has gotten used to it uh i was at a show in brisbane after the show someone said to me i wonder if he's not going to release that show because there were quite a number of flubs in fact if you listen to that show that was the valentine's day show in 2017 back in your arms basically he starts a song. It's a complete train wreck. He says it's a train wreck. They go back to starting it. They had several other flubs, you know, well, and, they, and, and it, they put it, the show out, you know, and it, it, sounded, and it sounded to me like they really had forgotten how the song went almost entirely. Yeah. And, and it is bold to, for an artist to put out there that his band, you know, totally forgot how to play the song. So he wouldn't have done that in 1985. No chance. <laughs> Not even close. So eventually he does get over it and we arrive at 2014 and they do announce that Bruce is going to be putting out every show on the High Hopes tour, right? Yes, they did. Yes, they announced that. And the initial plan, as it seemed to have been relayed through Rolling Stone or, or Backstreets, was that they were going to make each show available on a wristband, on a USB wristband. Yeah, this was quite mysterious. Now, I know there was like one other band doing it at the time like that, but by 2014, many artists were doing official bootlegs via download, and the USB thing really threw everyone for a loop. There was a big outcry, and to their credit, they, they did reverse themselves pretty quickly. Yeah, I think the main fear was that you could only, at least when they first explained it, was, does, does that mean I can only purchase the show that I attended so I can actually have to have the physical wristband? Right, it because, the, the, because it was going to be that you bought the wristband at the show with the USB and then took it home. I assume there would have been some kind of online sale, but that just makes it even more ridiculous because you would have been buying a USB wristband. They would have had to use the mail and packaging to send it to you to download the show. It just, it was, it was not well conceived. And as I said, they did back off it, thankfully. Yes. They, thankfully they, they did realize that that wasn't the most efficient way to do it. And they finally went with the program using live nation where anybody could purchase any show just directly online. And, and everyone was very excited about it. Absolutely. It was, you know, a long time coming, but now it's here kind of thing. Now, even with that, unfortunately, the, the the series does not get off to a start that is completely perfect. No, there was there were some problems with those early 2014 shows. Things did improve. Let's I mean, we have to be honest here. We have to give them full credit so that by the towards the end of the, the 14 run, they I thought they were sounding pretty damn good. Yeah, I was just happy to have them. Of course, I wanted the best quality they could possibly be, but it was so much better than any other route we were taking to get the live recordings prior to that, whether it was paying $75 in the 90s for three CDs or or tape trees or, or whatever process we were using. And it was just great to have. The delivery was right to your computer. You can't beat that. Now, it, we should point out on the 2014 tour, there was one show that was never released. That was the second Melbourne show, right? That is correct, yes. And that was never explained. They never said there was a technical problem. We just, we don't know why that was not released. We really have no idea. 
we can we can speculate, but we have no actual concrete facts on on the why. Now there was a second show, which of course was the final show of the tour at Mohegan Sun, which we were both at. The final night of any Springsteen tour is a very important night. In this case, he was finishing a huge round of touring, 2012-2013 Wrecking Ball, 2014 High Hopes. That night was a show that really a lot of people liked, but it was released and then shortly thereafter pulled. We don't know why that happened either. Right. What had, what had happened was that the show came out just a few days after, the recording came out a few days after the show, as, as was the, the pattern at the time. And then in late June, I think July 1, the Live Nation site went down. They, I guess they you know, lost a contract or however you want to phrase it. And then when, when Nugs took it over that fall in November of 2014, there was no second Mohegan Sun show there. Now, it is strange that Mohegan 2, when the, the shows do come up on Nugs, is gone because you can't really put that genie back in the bottle. The show was out. It, it exists in the world. You and I were there. Bruce did seem run down that night, and he did seem to lose his voice as the show went on. He did back-to-back nights with two very lengthy sound checks before each of those shows. I don't know if that justifies pulling that recording, but I guess we're never going to know the reason. Right. And once something is up on the internet, it's up there for life. So they might as well just put it back up on, on Nugs and take the money from people who still want to buy it. I don't think we should go too crazy fawning over Nugs, but really it is very important when they come into the picture. Oh, exactly. The Nugs site went live uh, the same day the album's Volume 1 box set was released. And along with all the 2014 shows coming back up, Apollo from 2012 was there. And, the that, first, and that, that that's the first archive release. Right, I was going to say that marked the beginning of the archival series. And the Apollo was mixed by Clear Mountain, right? Yes, it was. Uh, as you know, Sirius, um, East Street Radio and Sirius broadcast that show live. And then about two weeks later, they were promoting the Bob Clear Mountain mixed version of the Apollo show. So they, they definitely had it ready and it made a good entrance, I think, in, into the archive series. Yeah, I'd guess if we pulled the Springsteen fan base, that would not have been their first choice for the first archive show. But it did get the series underway. And from there, it, it really flourished. I would theorize that they wanted to go with something modern and, and sounding great, but they didn't want to overshadow the release of the album's box set. And once we get into 2015, now the Archive series gets fully underway. Even with Nugs involved, it, there were issues. Yes, there were. The first shows in 2015, we were so happy to have them, at least some, some of us were, that we were willing to overlook some of the, some of the sound quality issues. Uh, some of them certainly sounded really good. The, I'm thinking the Tower from 75 and the, the opening night of the Meadowlands in 84. Yeah, that's a good one. But the, uh, the Nassau Coliseum New Year's Eve show from, eight, from 80, you know, it didn't sound that much better than the bootleg. Yeah, that, that was a huge problem, I think. And a lot of people were very upset about it. To their credit, it has now in 2019 been corrected. Yes, and they, I think it really hit ahead in, in the end of 2015 when they re- released that the Rome show from 2013. Uh, it, it had that great set list. It had Little Lucky Town, Roulette, Summertime Blues, and of course the second side of The Wild and the Innocent. But the, re- the recording they released was really not much better, or actually it probably was not better, than an audience recording. Yeah, that one received a very poor response from the fan base. They immediately pulled it, and said that they were going to remix. 
Now, unfortunately, I would say when they released the remix, it's still the worst sounding of the archive series. Yes, I I would I agree 100%, but it was better than the than the first version of it, so got to give them credit for as you said for 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 responding, for listening to to the fan outcry. And then following Rome, they took a pause because the 2016 River Tour was going to be getting underway shortly thereafter, right? Yes, it wasn't much of a pause though because Rome was released in December of 15 and the tour kicked off in January of 16. Now, the tour kickoff in terms of the official bootleg series is notable to discuss because it was once again another misfire, but this misfire leads to the most important thing that happens in relation to the Springsteen official bootleg and archive series, and that's the introduction of John Outschiller. Right. I remember you called me when the Pittsburgh show was released and you were like, what is this? It was crazy. I was driving in my car. I turned on Sirius. The show had just been released. So hold on, hold on one second. Yeah. So you were driving in your car. Yeah. And you turned on the radio. Oh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry. Yes, I, I, did I did turn on the radio. I had to do that. Come on. Okay. Well, so I'm driving in my car. Yes. I turned on the radio and the Pittsburgh show is on the opening show of the tour and Backstreet's is playing and there's no vocals, like literally Bruce is inaudible. And I'm thinking to myself, there's a problem with the transmission from Sirius, not that it's an, an issue with the bootleg. And I get home and I later hear that, yes, there is a massive problem. There's the vocals were incredibly muted on that release. In, in, in all honesty, I don't know how that gets by what's known as a QC process quality control. It was really odd. But well, it, well how, what they wanted know, to do was make it karaoke Bruce for us. Yeah, well, and that would be fun for sure. But, uh, you know, on my, arc, on my official bootleg series, I'd like to hear Bruce. Yes, that is a very valid point. But as we say, that leads to literally, I mean, the most important thing I think so far in the series, which is the introduction of John Altschiller as the mixer of both the River Tour releases and also most, if not all, of the archives. Yes, the, the the organization was very responsive to the to an uh, again an, a, a very warranted negative fan reaction, and they responded very quickly. The was the Pittsburgh show that had the, such the issues, and then they made the second show, which was Chicago. They made that free as an MP3 download, and then the third show, which was the Garden in, in New York, that was the first Alt Schiller mix of of the series. And that really did change things for the better in in every regard. The shows are Al Schiller. We don't want to be too much of like fanboys here, but he really is doing an amazing job, and uh, he should be commended for it. Oh, absolutely. Um, his work is 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 amazing. Some people are big Clear Mountain fans, but uh, you know, I'm just as big a fan of, of the Al Schiller mixes. Now, after the 2016 River Tour, where Al Schiller does all the shows, then Bruce does go do a short tour in Australia and New Zealand, where I was lucky enough to see some of the shows. After that, the archive series resumes. They did yes. release the St. Louis show, which is, uh, I'm sure people have heard me wax poetic on the St. Louis show before. We don't need to go into it here, but <laughs> an amazing show to be sure. Absolutely. And then we learn that there's going to be something called First Fridays. Right. It seemed like every four or five weeks after each archive release, at least through the first half of 17, people on Twitter, including myself, would start tweeting to Nug saying, hey, you know, we time for a new, new Springsteen release, right? And so finally they said, okay. So they, be, they went on the E Street Radio, I believe it was around the 1st of August of 2017, 
and they said, all right, we're going to every the first Friday of every month will be the the release of a new show. That really did mark the moment where the archive series went to a whole new level. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. One of the things that I was most impressed with was that they really did commit to getting it right. They really did. And part of getting it right did include getting some input from fans on the show selections. Yeah, it's really fantastic that they did that. Now, as far as the classic era is concerned, of course, the choices are somewhat obvious because they're limited by what they have. That really also applies to the 92-93 tour and the Joad tour. Then we get into the reunion era in 1999. Now, as far as the selections from the reunion tour, I think it's okay if we say this because you have mentioned this publicly, right? Uh, You did once post that they only have select shows in select cities from this tour. Is that accurate? That is accurate. They don't have every show. It's really, we always were under the impression, and I'll admit, I really did believe they had every show from this tour. And I and I was under the, the same thinking. It's really a shame. And of course, there were so many great shows on that tour. We don't know what they have and what they don't have. But it seems like quite a number of shows that we would think would be included in the series may not be available. That is true. And of course, as Backstreet's has reported, there's currently a problem with accessing the Rising Tour shows as well, right? Yes, there is. And I think they really they really dropped the ball on this one. Oh, why is that? Well, I get, it's my understanding, they wanted to record more shows. Maybe not all the shows, but certainly more shows. But they used uh, a specific device or a technology that they, they didn't keep up with in the, in the, in the subsequent years. Well, as I understand it, and I guess from what Backstreet's has reported and we've heard elsewhere, they used what was at the time a state-of-the-art system. Now, unfortunately, as happens with technology, the, the that technology later went defunct and is no longer uh, on the market. Right. And so now here we are 16 years later, and they never that those recordings were never updated on the technology. Right. So what you're saying is they should have been transferred into another format sooner to allow them to access them. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I mean, that's fair. I, I, it is un, very unfortunate what has taken place. They did somehow access the Helsinki show, which is released, but I don't think anyone reasonably would put that on the list of top rising tour shows. Oh, n- not at all. It's a, it's a standard European rising show from, from that summer of 03. It's got uh, You're Missing and, and Worlds Apart, but there's no counting on a miracle. And really, we need shows from fall 2002 and and later in 2003. For sure. I think it would be really great if they can access shows from 2002 in America or the Atlantic City 2003 show. You also mentioned the stadium shows from 2003 uh, in America. Those were, of course, by then the show had changed. But for the purposes of highlighting the record, those 2002 American arena leg, or even if they had one of the six European shows played when they were barnstorming, they they really need to try and, and get one of those out. It's really disappointing that they haven't been able to pull that one off. Do, uh, have you heard anything? Is there any hope moving forward here? It's been a long time since Helsinki was released. I haven't heard anything. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I do like Chicago's. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. 
Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love want to love or hate yeah imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh has impacted your life uh and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week so triangulate your speakers think about jumping off the bed singing along dancing like an idiot and listen to axe grind podcast all right well i guess then we're just gonna have to wait and see on the rising Yep. Yes, we will. So should we talk about some of our favorites from this series? That'd be fun. So what are some of your favorites, Flynn, in the series? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, where do I start? I love them all. What can I say? Uh, some of my favorites, the, the 88 stuff. Uh, we, Stockholm. We, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we do treat like first Friday now, as we were saying earlier, it's like a national holiday. It really is. Not. I, I don't get a lot of work done on the first Fridays. I mean, it's like every show is has something special and something unique to it. Um, but certainly, talking about the the garden from two thousand with the with Blood Brothers and further on up the road and Code of Silence, as well as he, finally hearing the entire Stockholm uh, nineteen eighty eight show. We, you know, we I practically knew the first half every second, but now to be able to hear the entire show is just. It's like thank goodness, and that's and that is what that's what this sets for. That's what the series is for. Well, and in addition to that, I think one of the things that it does, I don't know how many people they're capturing in terms of uh, buyers for the series that aren't as well acquainted or you know a, a diehard Bruce fans, but it serves as such a document the entire series as to what Bruce has been doing live and why his reputation is what it is. One of the things that I really think is is cool about the series is it provides both us and the rest of the fans a new opportunity to assess both shows we've seen and shows we haven't seen. And I've got to say, it's led to some surprising conclusions for me. For example, the Born in the USA Stadium tour is not generally, I think, regarded as an artistic high point by a lot of fans. But listening to the LA 85 show that was released, that's become my go-to show on the Born in the USA tour. It just really full of life, that show. And it's made me reassess my thoughts for that leg of the tour, which I did see. Well, I'm going to I'm going to throw out a little a little thought here on that one, which is I'm going to chalk that up to a recording bias. We really don't have a lot of excellent recordings, you know, bootleg recordings from the 85 tour. Let's be honest here. A lot of the, you know, we got into the bigger venues, we got into the stadiums, the sound wasn't exactly the best, and you didn't have the best tapers in the, you know, in the first 15 rows or whatever. And so now you, you have this perfect show, and you can hear every little nuance that, of the, the performance. 
you're hearing it basically for the first time because you are. You're yeah, hearing. Oh, no, that's a fair point. A totally fair point. And and the way that that one comes when when I'm listening to that one, it really gives me a jolt. And so you're making you're definitely making a good point here. That I, I had. I'm sorry. Go ahead. The best example of that, to be honest, is that Chicago 99 show. Nobody nobody gave a lot of credit to it being a very strong show. And then there is the East Coast bias that you just come off the 15 shows at the Meadowlands and the six shows in Boston, five in Philly or what or vice versa. And then they go to Chicago and he hasn't really debuted. He didn't debut anything at this show, but it was a strong performance. We just didn't know about it because there wasn't an excellent recording. I mean, we were basically hearing this song for hearing this show rather for the first time when we when Bruce released it uh, last year. Now, do you think that's why they released that show? I don't know. That's that's a very valid question. I don't know. It's in some ways it's similar to the Philly shows from a few days earlier, and and it's also similar to the Los Angeles show. Well, we do know that Serling has said on the air that their research and data indicates that very well-known shows actually sell the best, which is somewhat counterintuitive. You would think perhaps like Winterland, which was bootlegged and everyone has, you would think, okay, they released that. Maybe that wouldn't sell as well as a show from the week before that nobody's ever heard. But according to Serling, it is not. You know, the shows, whether it's Bruce or whether it's another artist, the shows that have historically been most known to the fan base sell the best when they release them as official archives, which is another reason why the Chicago choice is interesting, although perhaps limited by, you know, the fact that they don't have that many selections from 1999. Yeah, it's I mean, that show certainly wasn't known. And well, we don't know the sales figures either, but certainly you, you know, he, they just released a Passaic broadcast from 78. And it certainly has, it certainly was at the top of the charts for, on Nugs for, for several days there. And, and the thing is, I mean, we recognize at 9-1978, which is, is it perhaps the most legendary show? It's Well, it's up there. I don't know if it's bigger than the bottom line 75, but it is, I think, widely regarded as one of the top two or three shows of his career. You know, the level of excitement that greeted that release was was well deserved it was but you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna be uh play devil's advocate again oh please do oh okay this is gonna be fun because i'm gonna piss off some people uh, is it really one of the best concerts of his entire career or are we just saying that because we have this excellent radio broadcast of an excellent performance from one of the best tours of his career I would take issue with you there. I mean, of course, neither we should say for the record, neither you nor I were lucky enough to be in the Capitol Theater in 1978. Uh, we both would have been very young for one thing. Uh, yeah, just just a little. Just a little. But I think that if you really think about it, and, and we know that the level of shows it, it, that he was performing, both based on people who were there and what we know from the recordings, the, the level of shows he was playing in that New Jersey, New York run as September was incredibly high. So yes. So maybe the fact that the 919 show was, was beamed out to the world is a factor and a bias on our part. But I would argue perhaps the opposite, which is Bruce knew it was going out to the world. And he said, I'm going to really be do this big tonight. And I, you know, it certainly, it sounds that way to me. Now I will say if you ask me, if you gave me truth serum, and I think you and I had this conversation, as much as a, excitement as it was to get September 19th, 
Would I prefer to have the first night of Winterland, which is a very important show to me personally, as it was the first live Springsteen bootleg I ever got? I would probably give the edge to to the Winterland show, but uh, certainly Mosaic's uh, reputation is well deserved. Yeah, but you just proved my point. Okay, that's Gee, fine. I wonder why would the first night of Winterland is the show you want you want released because you have an excellent recording of it. We've had excellent recordings of that show for for forty years. For me, it's emotional because really, when I first oh. got into Bruce, I, I, I'm admitting it. When I first got into Bruce. Someone gave me, I, I ju- it was early on in the Born in USA tour when I, and I'd been a fan previously, but I saw my first show in 1984 and someone said to me, you should hear this recording and gave me a vinyl copy of Winterland and I recorded it to cassette. I, there's no question. I have a special place emotionally in my heart for that show because of the fact that I wore that thing out, uh, you know, I must have played it, you know, 500 times. The number of copies of Winterland I went through was very high. Right. I understand that. But the question was whether it was one of the greatest performances of his career. You know, was Winterland better than Seattle and Portland just a few days later? Well, we can't answer that question. The ability to determine truly what the best shows were, you probably needed to be there. And you and I have been very fortunate to see quite a number of shows in what we call the reunion era and certainly a a large number of shows even before the reunion era, but especially these past 20 years. So we have more of a basis to form these opinions. Here it is true. We're we're going off of recordings. The recordings are limited. So I I guess I will give you your point there. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, it's just always interesting that the best re- the best shows in history in Bruce's history just happen to be radio broadcasts. I find a little too little too coincidental. Well, but the Coliseum twelve thirty one eighty wasn't a radio broadcast, and I think everyone considered that to be certainly right up there with these other shows we're talking about. Now, is this one I point out that we've had a soundboard? We had a soundboard of that show going back to the to the early eighties. Oh, I don't I don't even recall that. I mean, I knew I had the show at the time. I probably didn't know the difference between a soundboard, you know, an audience recording. If I could hear Bruce, I was just happy. And uh, it's a little bit different now, of course. Oh, yes. I mean, I'm aware that, you know, when we were younger, just just hearing Bruce that no one else has heard before was was a thrill. But now that we have a few years on us, some experience with various sound qualities that exist on these recordings, we can say Nassau Coliseum was considered a great run. Why? Because we have soundboard recordings of each one. But I think also there was a lore to that show. And in fact, uh, your wife, your lovely wife was there. There was a lore to that show from people who attended it who said something went on that night that wasn't the norm, even as great as Bruce was on the River Tour. That show was an elevated experience for a lot of the people there. So that's the one thing I would say. Well, I'm not gonna, I can't argue with you there, but how, what is it only what, 12,000 people there, 13,000? Yeah, it's, 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 it's not a very big arena. Was it really that much better than the garden shows from you uh, know, the, a month are, earlier? These are questions we're obviously not gonna be able to answer. <laughs> I mean, you know, what we can, what I will say as far as our favorites that we did witness, you know, of course, St. Louis, which I think, as we remarked earlier, yes, I've been known to uh, have some comments about St. Louis, and I do consider August 23rd, 2008, probably to be the best rock concert I've ever seen. Truly a tremendous night. Another show that you and I were together at, the final night of Danny Federici. Now, we obviously knew that was a very 
emotional and special night when we were there. But I will say listening to that one, once they released it, as much as we thought the show was important when we were there, that show is really elevated by the, the release that they've given it. Oh, 100%. It's like the magic material really hasn't lost its appeal. I mean, it's it still sounds pretty darn fresh to me when I when I listen to one of these shows and to hear that one at full blast, you know, they're going full speed at that show for the entire night. And it really does. It does come through on the recording. And you're right. I do have a fresh appreciation of that one from the release. To know what would have been going through the band's minds that night, uh, it was not a secret. I mean, obviously, the band would have known. And certainly, I I went to that show because someone had said to me, unfortunately, Danny was going to be leaving the tour, and I was in New York, and I came up special because I was not planning on attending that show. There was a, a sadness. Is that the right word? That is the right word. And in a way, the recording is so energized and... But I do think there are moments where that sadness comes through. I mean, obviously, when Bruce is paying tribute to Danny with with Sandy, and but to me, it's the version of This Hard Land, which was an unusual version of This Hard Land because Bruce counted into it, and it starts with the band as opposed to Bruce being solo, which is how I think he normally starts it. And there was a poignancy to that, and that was a song that was not played at any other point that year. So it was yeah. a special selection for that night, and there was a poignancy to it that really does come through on the recording. My thoughts on that song were that that was he played it where Promised Land usually was. And I think it took people 30 seconds to, to realize, hey, this isn't Promised Land. This is this hard land. And certainly the line, stay hard, stay hungry, stay alive, carried extra resonance on that night. And yes, all that all that comes through on the recording. Interesting question. Do you think that because if since it started unusually with the band, do you think he did that intentionally? I mean, obviously it was intentional that the that it was a different arrangement than he normally played. But do you think that he said to himself, people are going to actually think this is promised land because he knows a lot of us are seeing shows and he would have counted into promised land there. I don't know on that one. It's a, That's an interesting point that you make, though. Well, I would be surprised if he didn't acknowledge to himself, I'm going to throw people off here. Are there any other shows in the series where moments like that stand out for you, whether we were there or not? The Garden 88, the final the final U.S. date of the Tunnel of Love Express Tour. That's the best lie today I have ever heard. Well, that's um, a great show in general. And, and we know there was definitely stuff going on in his personal life, which he's written about, written about in the book and was otherwise publicized through other tabloid means uh, back when it happened. But yeah, I, I mean, that version of Light of Day with alternate lyrics and, of course, Born to be Wild. I mean, obviously, I knew that was included in the song. But until I, you know, until we really heard Max's driving drums and, and that and the, the guitar attack from Bruce and Nils and even the the anger and aggression and maybe not anger, but certainly aggression in Bruce's voice as he sang those, those alternate lines to Light of Day just just made it come through even more. What about you? Uh, the show where Bruce returned to his family's church, St. Rose of Lima, you know, and to think uh, what they've captured on that show, it's reflected years later, of course, in the Broadway performance, but there is something there that is just it, the, the rawness of the performance and knowing that he's standing back on the stage there in that school, that one that really, it, it does stick out for me. Okay, I can see that. That's one of the that's one of those where the intangibles 
of of even the, of the venue and and the audience interaction you know they're noticeable they're tangible now on the recording in in terms of talking about reassessing specific shows or periods of Bruce's career I think one of the shows also that I find notable in that sense is the July 25th, 1992 show from the Meadowlands that they released a few months back that captures an early performance on the other band tour. Not so much a reassessment for me because I think it's generally well known. Flynn and I have a very high opinion of the 92, 93 material and what Bruce did on that tour, I think higher than perhaps a lot of other fans. But this recording did give people a chance to hear the tour in a context that they otherwise hadn't heard it. Flynn, what do you think? Did you get the sense also that there was perhaps some reassessment of what was being done there? I do. I think people gave it another chance, being able to hear, you know, again, a perfect recording and, and hearing the little nuances here and there, the little riffs here and there. I think people, you know, opened their eyes just a little bit more, maybe not all the way like us, but certainly a newer appreciation for that era. Yeah, reading some of the comments online is definitely still, people are not ready to accept real man. Now, I take it as the fun, <laughs> easy pop that Bruce meant it as, I think. That is one that I don't think we're going to sway the fan base on. No, I mean, it was it was a fun song. I, I You were there. I was there, yes. You know, I was not. I was there. I was at the first night, though. It's a fun song. It's, you know, corny, like, like Bruce said it was. And go with it. You have some fun. But it is, I, it's just so cool to be able to reevaluate and hear, as you're saying, who would be listening to a show from 1992-93 these days? I don't even think you and I listen to that many shows off the 92-93 tour in terms of unofficial recordings. And more, it, anyway. that's the beauty of the series, that it's out there now. People can listen to it. They can assess for themselves what took place. Maybe some of them saw the tour. S some of us uh, did see the tour, you know, gives a chance to revisit Look, it's just great that we have them, and I don't want to sound too much like a fanboy, but they they really have done a stellar job, uh, you know, as the series has progressed. Well, I, I, as you know, I totally agree. It's hard to it's hard to make a serious argument against any of the releases that that they've made. You can say, oh, well, what about this show, or what about that show? Well, what about the show they just released? It's a strong show, and it sounds great. I mean, you can say that about about just about all of them, except for that Rome show. And I can't listen to bootlegs anymore. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Yeah, I have the same thing. And I haven't listened to an unofficial recording in, in I can't even remember when. Look, that's why people do these official bootleg series. It's great for the artist. Uh, you know, this is free money, basically. I mean, how much these tapes were already done. They're sitting in a vault somewhere. And now they're being monetized. So from that sense, it's obviously great for the artist. And artistically it's getting his the bruce springsteen live aura you want proof this is the proof and it just really it's great to have so on that front people you, you could accuse me of being a fanboy or whatever but with, with the exception of some very people people who are coming along grudgingly i think actually most people share our view of this series i think so too i think so too it's just that but people do, do expect shows that they don't have, that they don't have either in either at all or in multi-track quality and you know without a souped up delorean we're just not going to get them right that i think it brings us to perhaps the way we should conclude which is where does the series go from here oh yes uh i mean there are definitely some obvious choices going going forward uh certainly from the from the classic era um not exactly you know i'm kind of master of the obvious here but obviously but 
you know, Winterland 78 needs needs to come out, New Jersey 81. Well, you're and those you're mentioning shows that we know they have. I mean, right. That's my that's my point that we, we know they have. We know they will be coming out. And so it's just a matter of when at this point. There were shows, and in fact, Nugs just did this. They tweeted a few weeks ago asking fans, you know, what would be your selections from the Bruce Springsteen archives that we should release? And well, the exact they, wording was, what is your holy grail? Oh, right. Yes. Well, and people's holy grails, unsurprisingly, are the bottom line and the Vietnam veterans performance from August 20th, 1981. Now, the bottom line, you were at the event. I believe Bruce said rather clearly and confirmed they don't have it. Right. Well, no. No, I, I I can't say that. He said they weren't recorded professionally. Well, um, okay, but they're releasing professional recordings. Okay, well, see, it, this comes back to my two tracks are better than none comment. I would rather, I would love to hear what they have just on on a two-track cassette from the soundboard. Well, that's, that's going to be better than anything we have. Every person in the Springsteen fan community would agree that if they have something from the bottom line, whatever it is, they should get it out there in the best quality they can. I, I, I think that it's very, uh, that is not a difficult statement to make. No, it's not. But I'm, what I'm trying to say is to Bruce and his people, whatever they have, whether it's, I don't care if it's, you know, 24 track or two. Whatever they have is going to be better than what we have, and we and I want to hear that, especially you know considering the the historic importance of those shows. My personal belief, and this is just a guess on my part, that if they had anything from the bottom line, based on the fact they released the Christic, which was not uh, multi-track, they released the seventy-seven shows, which are of course not multi-track. I think if they had anything serviceable that they felt that they could charge people for. From from the bottom line, seventy five, it would be out. I'm not sure I agree with you. Actually, I, I don't agree with you. Uh, the Christic was an unusual situation. Uh, it was it was one that a lot of fans would have identified as being a a prime candidate for release. And I know you can say that about the bottom line, but at the same time, they have they've already released three three shows from seventy five in multi track. And so they may think, hey, you know, maybe it's not, you know, maybe they're not ready for something that's not that's not multi-track. And as you as you know, I mean, to state the obvious again, they haven't released anything from that 77 batch either. I would like for you to be right and me not to be right on this point, because if I'm right, there's going to be nothing. Right. Well, I mean, at that at that at that event in Asbury in April, I mean. They showed video, you know, full songs from at, from two different shows from the bottom line. And so they have something they, they probably, you know, I wonder if they have all all nine or ten bottom line shows on on film from 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 Barry Rebo, you know, and I don't it, almost like I wouldn't care what it sounded like. I just want to see it. Right. Well, I, well, you did see part of it. I, I, I saw, obviously, yeah, I, I was I not there, two so two, two I, songs. Right. I can't comment on it. But and what about the vets? Uh, people are probably asking, does Flynn know anything about the vets? And Flynn does not. That's the one I would I would say that since we don't have they haven't released it, they probably don't have it in multi-track. I, I think that's a given. I mean, it would be hard to believe that this many years into the series, if they had a multi-track recording of that show, that it, that it would still be sitting in the vault. I think the other thing that cuts against it is, of course, we know the source shows for Live 75 to 85 from that period. That was not one of them. No. And they have the, we have the New Jersey shows that source several songs on the box. 
So that's one we're co- we're counting on as being a definite. But you're right. I you know I don't think they have a multi-track from the Vets eighty-one. And now, the other thing is uh, to mention Halen's book. Didn't he? He did cite the uh, London recordings, which was, June fifth has been released. I don't think those were previously known about, but he had been in the archives. So if he did mention London, if he had been in the archives and seen that the vets was also there, presumably he would have said something, right? Uh, presumably, yes. But but see, to me, this is another another opportunity or another chance to say two tracks are better than none. If they have any kind of cassette master from the soundboard, I th- that should be released. Yeah, and, without question, that show is of, signor- of significant historical importance. Anything that they have that they can get out there really should definitely be released. Oh, 100%. I mean, and they have tools that fans don't, uh, or at least that they, ha- they have access to, to, to audio restoration techniques that, that we can only dream of, unless we have a lot of money and know exactly what to do. And so they could probably take even a average soundboard and really make it pop whatever they have of any quality i think again as we're saying the significance of that show calls for it to be released exactly now what about some other off-the-wall choices you know you know think i've been thinking about that recently uh in my off the off the wall choice is probably not that off the wall mm-hmm. uh 7 13 the day Which, before the cardiff show the day before the lead show that was released that is a random choice, Flynn. I'm not going to de- deny it. Well, I got I got three words for you. TV, movie, Cynthia. Well, but Cynthia has been released, in- including on the September 22nd, 2012 show recently. That's the, that's the only E Street Band release of it. Okay. But TV, movie with Cynthia? And I think there was a little roulette in there, and uh, Eric Burden came out for We, we Gotta Get Out of This Place. It's well, not a bad show at all. Look, obviously, I'm for any show being released. So in that regard, of course. But do we need another show from the Wrecking Ball Tour? Or at least if it's going to be from the Wrecking Ball Tour, not have it be from the 2012 portion when he was doing the significant parts of the record. And I think the show was more artistically cohesive. Right. Well, I will agree with you on that one. I wasn't saying what I want to see released next month. I was just going for off the wall because um, the next if the next wrecking ball release should be something from the fall of 2012. And then after that, maybe we go back to Europe or maybe we, we circle back to maybe the first leg in the U.S. Or, of course, the uh, the legendary Fenway show that uh, people are seem to be dying to, to see released. Uh, of course, I'm going to you know what I'm going to say is and, and I don't know if they have it. Uh, that's the Count Basie rehearsal show from March 23rd, 1993, which was, I mean, that was really a bonkers sort of night. Bruce came out and said he was going to do a bunch of songs that he doesn't normally play. It included really from out of nowhere, a song that we've already discussed and is now more routine. But the, at the time, This Hard Land was a long lost outtake suddenly being performed on stage. It was, it was really crazy. and that was at a time when he wasn't exactly pulling out, you know, today it's not that unusual for him to play an outtake, but at the time it was, it was really, really unusual. And oh, then t- totally out of nowhere. Yeah. And then, I mean, that show also includes certainly a one-off cover that I am sure will never be repeated. And that was uh, Bruce doing an impromptu version of Billy Ray Cyrus's achy breaky heart, 
which uh, some people are probably like, what? But uh, really was quite a high point. Yeah, that was quite the mind-blowing night. Um, I mean, I wish I was there. I remember calling the Backstreet's boss hotline to, and hearing the set list and being pretty pretty blown away, to say the least. And again, that show, you know, it kind of roadmapped the next five years of his career. Um, and, you know, just uh, and to me, it's important just in that way. Yeah, totally. And hopefully if they have that, I don't know if they'll have a multi-track of that. Uh, but I'm going to I'm going to bet against a multi-track, but, uh, you know, a two track, a two track dat, you know, imagine, you know, the, the Dublin 93 soundboard from like yeah. it's like the second half of the show. Mm-hmm. Imagine the Basie in that quality. Yeah, well, and, and of course, the Basie is a show that is available in very very low quality i mean uh, for for the time period yeah Yeah, we've tried i'm not i'm I'm, I'm not condemning anyone it just that's just the reality of the recording right Right. so and uh, and anything else i mean uh, what about of shows that you know not necessarily winterland because we know winterland is presumably going to be released at some point but what about shows that we know they have that we feel uh, you and i feel that should be released well i see you bring up winterland so my mind goes to berkeley 78 uh, that was a show that was recorded uh two and two songs prove it in paradise by the sea were uh, played by the king biscuit flower hour right yes so you know we know we know they have that one it seems to be people seem to forget it in the uh amongst the the four radio broadcasts but it's one they do have anything from the class or classic era that they have should be released and in fact that's one of the complaints you read a lot online that they're not getting to that stuff quickly enough why release you know two shows from 2012 when you haven't released Winterland yet, you know, and I think we're of the understanding. One of the reasons is because there's, they have a limited amount of stuff from 1975 to 1984 and they're spreading it out so that they don't go through it all in just a brief period. Oh, I totally agree. You can't, you know, excuse the expression, but blow your load quickly. And then, cause you have nothing else to look forward. To. Wait, Flynn, we are, have not put an, any kind of adult language warning on this show. <laughs> Well, okay, you don't exactly, uh, yeah, well. Well, we should probably, you know, you're getting a little punchy. Maybe we'll wrap up here in a moment. I think we should. You know that I'm going to put out a word for, uh, and I know there have been several 2012 shows released. Uh, The Paris July 5th, 2012 show, I think that's a show worthy of release. And also, we don't know if they have it from the reunion tour, but of course, May 8th, 2000, which you and I were together, uh, that was quite a performance. Yes, it was. And, uh, you know, we have an excellent recording that was mixed from several wireless sources. But Who mixed that? I didn't. I mixed the audience with an already uh, with uh, with the with the wireless mixes already together. So I didn't mix from scratch. I, I, I don't know who mixed the, the wireless. Oh, inter- that's actually information I didn't know. Really? Yeah. All right. Well, you did a good you did a good job on that one, but we need it replaced. Yeah, we do. Even the best recordings like that just are just they're crap compared to what is uh, what they could do with the with the full multi track. Yeah, again, not to uh, kiss up to John Altshuler too much, but just really the it's, every it's, month it's really great. His work is amazing, and I'm I'm thankful that they brought him on and and that they've you know we love the multi track sources, but. At times we, you know, we want shows that are outside the that scope. Do you get the sense that they're going to move beyond the multi-tracks? I mean, I think you do have some insight. I don't know, honestly. One day, you know, and and I would like, to, you know, like to think they could put those out without 
with less overhead, they don't have to have John Ottschiller mix, you know, 24 tracks. They could just mix, you know, take two and just punch it up as best they can. And they can, and they can do a lot and maybe charge a little bit less, you know, maybe a, the third Friday series, which, which has all the, the two track soundboards. My thought is that if they have two tracks of some of the legendary shows we were just discussing, they will probably get to it. I don't think they're going to release too many random two tracks of, of shows that aren't talked about very much, both because of what we said, where, you know, Serling was saying that the better known shows sell better. And also they've got so much available with the multi-tracks. Yeah, they do have from 05 to, to, to 13. I mean, I think almost every track, every show is, is multi-track. And so there are, you know, they can easily go back to those when they need a, you know, they need something that's going to blow our socks off sound wise. So last question before we wrap up, uh, I'm just curious. I think our listeners will be curious. True or false? These are picked like a couple of days in advance. <laughs> false. Yes. <laughs> these things are chosen months in advance, to my knowledge. And um, yeah, <laughs> they I mean, you know, they got to pull the tapes. They got to. They pull the tapes from the archives. I got to send them to Alt Chiller to mix. He has to have time to mix them. I don't, obviously, with his work on the 1617 tour, he, he can do them quickly. Uh, but with something he probably, with a show he probably doesn't have presets for, it's going to take him a little longer. Well, and the, and more of the point I was making is that they, the thought is being put into this. These shows are not being selected at random. No, there's no, they're not being pulled out of a hat. Which is good. Which is good. People people are picking them who know what they're doing. Well, let me just get to a little bit of business to wrap up here. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. Please subscribe to our show. You can go on Apple. It's there or any other podcast platform of your choice. We'd love it if you give us five stars. We love those stars. Love we, those stars. We do. And on the web, we're at nonebutthebravepodcast.com. And you can follow us on Facebook. Our page is at None But The Brave Podcast. And we're on Twitter at NBTB Podcast. For Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McClain saying we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. What was it like to be there for historical sports moments and unforgettable performances? To be behind the scenes? On PressBox Access, you'll hear from me, Todd Jones, and other sports writers about their experiences with the greatest athletes, coaches, and sports events of the past half century. We'll share some stories behind the stories, some big, some small, and some we've only told each other. Let us buy you around on PressBox Access.